Hi there. This is Sam Hinkle, Communications and Development Director for the Kavira Coalition. The thing that makes the work of Kavira possible is the fact that it is a coalition. So many people and organizations have supported our work in regenerative agriculture over the last year. We are grateful to each and every one of you. Thank you all so much. If you listen to this podcast and support resilient working lands, we invite you to contribute further to the work of this coalition. Kavira hopes to raise $20,000 before the end of 2021. Making a donation is easy. Just visit www.kiviracoalition.org donate. That's Q-U-I-V-I-R-A coalition.org donate. Thank you for your consideration and happy new year. You are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. I'm the New Agrarian Program Colorado Manager at Kivira Coalition. Today, our guest on the podcast is Kate Mannix. She is a beloved friend of the program and a generally impressive and incredible human being. She got her start as a forester, went on to become a New Agrarian Program apprentice, worked on a couple different ranches, and landed at the Mannix Brothers Ranch in Helmville, Montana. She actually married one of the Mannix brothers and is now a rancher and natural fiber artist and works for the Blackfoot Challenge. We are so excited to have her as our guest today. So thank you so much for joining us. And here is Kate Mannix. So Kate, where are you from? And I'm just always curious, uh, when you were a little kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? It's a great question. So I'm from Mount Shasta, California, um, volcano up near the Oregon border. Um, I <laughs> recently introduced it and said, it's a dormant volcano, so who knows when it's going to blow to smithereens. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, awesome place. Um, and then when I was growing up, I really wanted to be an interior designer. Like I was really into spaces and moving around furniture and colors. And um, so I was pretty convinced of that up until uh, late high school years that that was what I was going to be doing. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. I guess for your listeners later on in the podcast, we'll talk about your dyeing and, and fiber, natural dyes and everything. So it kind of kind of makes sense, right? It kind of came full circle. Yeah. yeah and I find, I mean, I'm, I've always had that interest. So it sticks with me to this day. And I'm sort of in that position now where we're in the house that we're most likely going to be in forever. And so it's like a culmination of 30 years of ideas coming together. It's quite the storm. So yeah, we'll kind of go through uh, your path to where you are now. So you studied forestry in your undergrad and graduate school. What was your subsequent work like? So I I started off um, in college with sort of like the, I'll take one of every class I think I might be interested in and see where this leads me. And I had a forestry class. My 
um, freshman year that sort of took me down the natural resources road. And I became very interested in sustainable agriculture during that time as well. And so I did kind of everything that our school had to offer on those things. I did a semester abroad in Costa Rica, living on a small dairy and working sugarcane plants. And and then I, so I was actually a self-designed sustainable ag major. And then I took, um, you could take a forestry camp over the summer and that would give you a minor in forestry. And it was a good time up in the Sierras and um, school credit. So I was pretty interested in doing that. So I did that. And that was like, totally changed my trajectory. Um, and I switched my major to forestry and then continued to study that through grad school. And so then after grad school, I knew I wanted to work in private industry and I knew I wanted to stay in the state of Montana. And so I um, sort of looked around my options and found a job as a consulting forestry or forester for a forestry company. And so that allowed me to work on all sorts of ownerships across the state. I worked for private ranchers, worked for a lot of smaller landowners, and then worked for like BLM and Forest Service to doing contract stuff. So kind of took me all over the state and gave me a taste of just that that consulting aspect, which I, I really liked that part working with all those people and all those landowners. So what made you move away from forestry if you enjoyed it so much? I really enjoyed um, some aspects of forestry. I I enjoyed working with people. We ended up doing a lot of work that um, (laughs) ourselves, which was kind of not really programmed, but we did a lot of the thinning projects um, on our own. I worked for our loggers. I ran equipment. (laughs) So I actually really enjoyed those aspects of the job. And Um, So I was doing a lot of that my first year. And then my second year, I sort of transitioned to a lot more desk work and just found that not as much to my liking and just kind of struggled being at a desk, honestly. And so I started trying to figure out what my other options were. And I think it was definitely on the table to go try to work for a timber company. But I had this inkling for one thing, I was working for all these ranches in this forestry capacity, and I would like look at what the ranchers were doing and and really feel a draw towards that. Um, so that was part of it. And then I also had sort of these pin drops of experience in ranching. I had worked um, on a horse ranch in high school. I had done some days here and there in college. Um, and so I had these sort of just ideas in the back of my head that sort of felt like they were resurfacing. And so I really just wanted to give it a go and try it out. And so I spent sort of a year agonizing over that just because I had worked, you know, in this pretty linear path up until this point. And then it felt like taking this sharp U-turn or going a different direction. It was a little scary, but finding Kavira really helped that just because it gave a little bit of structure to like what I was trying to, to achieve. So that brings you to my next question. How did you even find Kivira and the new agrarian program? So for listeners, um, Kate was in an apprentice in our new agrarian program. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just wondering, Kate, how did you find out about the program? Well, I gave everybody a lot of crap when I first joined the program because it was very hard to find. And they have done a lot better job with like the Google algorithms now. But um, 
I did a lot of Googling before I found it. And I think there was something with the word internship and apprenticeship that wasn't computing, but eventually I just found it online. I actually think it was through like a Ranch World ads post and that kind of circled me back to the NAP website. So that's how I ended up finding it. It was sort of no word of mouth, no connection, just eventually Google gave up and gave me the answer I wanted. And that's what I love about the new agrarian program is we've come a long way, you're right, in terms of marketing. But I think it, the cool part is that you can access it without knowing absolutely anybody in the industry. Like you you did know people in, in the industry, but you didn't necessarily find this through them. And that's kind of what I like is we can reach people who have are, you know, in the middle of New York City, even, you know, like and that's making it accessible to those people is pretty cool. Yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, I, yes, I knew some ranchers, but it there's sort of um, an understanding if you're not in ranching, there's sort of an understanding sometimes that you cannot become a rancher. It's sort of like one of those things that you were born into. And so I know that mental block for me was like, it was very hard for me to just walk up to maybe one of these ranchers I knew and said, I know nothing about ranching. Would you hire me? And um, so I think that's the the value in, in NAP, honestly, is just you, you can click on the website and they're like, yeah, you might not know anything. Please come, you know, we'll, we'll take you. Yeah. So tell us about your program, um, your apprenticeship in 2018. You were your first year in an apprenticeship. Tell us about that experience. Yeah. So I worked for Triangle P Cattle Company, and that was a five-year lease on the Mescalero Apache Reservation in the Sacramento Mountains in New Mexico. So it was very remote. It was very cool because the ranch was actually about 100,000 acres. It was split into two parcels. There was the cow-calf operation on one side of the reservation and then this talker operation was on the other side of the reservation. So there were sort of two sets of managers um, and we would work together on big moves, but we were like an hour apart from each other. And then we were an hour down a dirt road from Rudoso, which is the closest town. So it was incredible. I mean, it was really neat to be, to have access to that land because non-tribal members typically don't. And so that was really incredible it was just beautiful learning a different ground, you know, just getting to like really learn these acres um, in this incredible country. And it was cool to experience New Mexico because honestly, people in New Mexico are amazing. I always say that they make Montanans look mean, which is hard to do because Montanans are really nice. But I feel like if you go to New Mexico or Wyoming, you're like, wow, people are even nicer here. So yeah, it was just an awesome experience. And I really treasure it. So what were the biggest lessons that you learned from that apprenticeship? Either, you know, like physical, actual skills or sort of more soft skills and ideas? So one of the the lessons that I sort of learned and then got to practice so much was up until that point, I had really stuck to things that I already knew I was good at and sort of kept on this trajectory and was very apprehensive about being bad at things. And I don't think I would have said that at the time, but looking back, that's totally what was going on. And so when I was accepted and signed up to do the apprenticeship, I sort of knew that I wasn't going to be any good at it. But getting to be a beginner that whole first year and 
really learn how incredible it is to be a beginner and become sort of addicted to that, you know, becoming, feeling like if you're not learning something, if you're not a beginner at something, then you're doing it wrong. So I think the biggest thing was really learning how to lean into that beginnerness. That is so important. I think it's, I, we so often see even myself in my own like farming journey when you're 23 and you're, you're just like so uncomfortable with doing anything new, but really that's the time you should spend being incredibly uncomfortable, pushing yourself into new situations. Uh, and so, yeah, I love that. I think that's really valuable. What, what are some of the challenges that you faced on that ranch? Like, are there certain aspects of ranching that you found had a larger learning curve? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one was just being so isolated. And I think that's something that a lot of new agrarian apprentices can relate to. I knew one person in the state of New Mexico when I moved down there and she was five hours away. So, you know, I had a a strong friend base uh, up here in Montana. So to go down there and be an hour from other people, I loved my bosses, but you work a little very closely together and sometimes you need another person um, to talk to. So that was definitely a challenge. Um, and then I think the other big challenge was that I knew I wanted to come back to Montana. So I was meeting all these amazing people and forming these relationships and building this community around ranching, which is what I wanted to be doing. But it was sort of a heartache at all times because I knew I was going to be headed back here afterwards. So that was sort of hard too, because I was sort of in the wrong, wrong place with the right people. Yeah. Are there any things that really surprised you about ranching? You kind of had been exposed to it before, but really being in an operation, understanding cattle moves, understanding you know, the really inner workings of a ranch. Are are there any aspects of that that you uh, found surprising? I was surprised. So I, I have a journal entry from the beginning of my time in New Mexico. And it was like, can I really be a rancher if I don't really care about cows? And when I went on this journey, I knew I liked working with my hands. I knew I liked ecology, applied ecology specifically. And like, the disturbance regimes and soil health. And I knew I cared about all those things, but I had been as part of 4-H as a kid, but had never really gotten into the whole raising livestock thing. So I just kind of thought I like wouldn't, I didn't really care enough about cows. And I would say the opposite is true now. I, I came for the ecology, but I really stayed for the cows. I love working with the livestock. I love stockmanship. I just love thinking about breeding and diet and all of those things. And so I was, you know, by the end of my first apprenticeship, I was pretty hooked. That's the hook. That's why I'm still here is the dang cows. <laughs> so after your first year uh, in New Mexico, you decided to stay a second year. So Kivira has first year apprentices and they can choose to stay on for a second season. So you chose to stay for a second season, but move up to Montana to spend the season up there. So what made you uh, decide that you wanted to spend another season with Kivira? Well, I think um, it really just was a pretty good fit. I, like I said, I knew I wanted to go back to Montana and I had an awesome opportunity from a connection with my boss down in New Mexico to work for a ranch up in um, Cascade for the winter. And that was sort of a good next step. I mean, it was literally like we did the phone interview as I was driving 
back to Montana. So it was very, um, last minute, you know, you felt like a real cowboy when you have your saddle in your back of your truck and you're just driving up to Montana looking for some work. Um, but I was sort of like looking for that next longer step. And when the, so when I had initially applied, there had not been any apprenticeships in Montana that next year, there were a couple and the Mannix Ranch really appealed to me because a couple reasons. The first thing was that it was equidistant between the two communities that I had lived in previously. And so sort of an hour from all of my friends, which after being isolated for a year felt really awesome. And then secondly, they I felt like the skills I had learned in New Mexico had been pretty focused on that ranching in that region. You know, we did, I was on horseback every single day. We didn't do any farming or haying or irrigating. We were just on dry land, mountain pasture. So I knew that if I was going to be in Montana as a rancher, I needed to learn those skills. So the Mannix Ranch was really appealing because there's such a diversity of skills and ground here. So I knew I would learn, pick up those skills. And those were, I was all brand new at. So it felt appropriate to do those in a apprenticeship setting. And then I also, it's just a big family. And so it really appealed to me to have like a lot of different people that you were working from and learning from just because I had worked pretty closely with one person in New Mexico and with a couple others as well sometimes, but it was plenty more people up here. So that those all sort of made it feel like a really good fit. It's funny. I had interviewed earlier in the fall for a different ranch and had thought it was going to be the perfect deal and had flown up to Montana and done an interview in person. And it really ended up that it was not going to be the right fit at all. And I swore to myself that I wasn't going to take a job before going in person, just because when you work on a ranch, you work so closely and so intimately with everyone. And I totally broke that rule. I had the phone interview and I was like, by the end of it, I was like, oh yeah, that's the place. So it was very much intuition based as well. So the Mannix Ranch, you ended up meeting the man that you were going to marry, which is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it in every way. And so tell me about that's such an interesting transition to you're moving around, you're working on different places, figuring out what your life is going to be. And then boom, you are in a family at a place and you feel like that's where you're going to be for a long time. Tell me about how it was to transition into being a part of a ranching family, being a part of a ranching community, and then knowing that you're going to stay in one place and commit to one place. Yeah, well, it was pretty crazy. And it was pretty immediate too. So again, that intuition was pretty loud when I met my now husband, Brian. And so I knew within the first week that we were going to be married, we had met briefly at a Tuesday morning meeting. And then we spent half a day in a tractor plowing snow later in that week. And I like stepped out of the tractor and I was like, well, this is weird, but I'm going to marry that guy. And so, you know, it's not like something that you tell the family that you're apprenticing for. You're like, okay, so I'm actually going to be a part of this um, family, you know? And so it was kind of weird because I totally knew that I was, but still going about the business of being an apprentice, um, you know, it really changed my perspective on my apprenticeship because not only am I learning these new skills, but I'm learning them 
knowing that I'm going to be applying them in these same pastures the next year, you know, like really wanting to learn the ranch, wanting to learn how we do things here while also applying the few other experiences that I'd had and sharing that information as well. So, you know, it took me two months to tell Brian that I was going to marry him. So there was sort of that period. And then there was the period where we were dating and, you know, he didn't know that he was going to marry me yet. So there was, you know, all those different phases and just it was really cool though, because the Mannixes have a really open line of communication. And so um, I had an opportunity come down the pipeline just a couple months into my apprenticeship. And I sort of approached um, David, our ranch manager, and said, I would really like to come back here next year. I know maybe you can't hire me through the winter, but I would really like to do another year here. But if that's not going to work out, then there is this other opportunity, you know, that would be at the end of this apprenticeship. Should I take that? And they sort of gave me the go ahead to like, yeah, we'd, we'd take you for a second year. So that was nice too, just knowing that I had a job for, you know, the foreseeable future and the rest could sort of sort itself out in a reasonable timeline. What did it feel like to be in one place and not you know, and not moving around, like really committed to one place and to be a part of that ranching community because you didn't grow up in ranching. And so now to really feel like you're committed to one place, I think that's something that's really hard for some young people to wrap their brains around. And it can be really beautiful, but it can also be kind of scary. So how was that process for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was mostly ready for it. You know, there's definitely some other places that I had on my bucket list of like operations I wanted to work for or other opportunities just to keep expanding my knowledge. And I think there's a lot of value to that, like bopping around to different places so that when you do settle down somewhere, you honestly, you just have a lot to bring. You have a lot of perspective. So there's a little bit of that, but mostly everything I've ever wanted in a community I found here and I think it's very special what I've found here as far as just like people, a a small community that is super vibrant and alive and flourishing. And it was sort of everything I've always wanted and to find it in a community was pretty astounding. I I recognized that pretty early on. So I really have had no issue settling down here. And (laughs) honestly, I feel like once I moved here, this sort of became the boundaries of my whole universe or this watershed. And um, to venture outside is sort of like a huge mental hassle now. I'm like, oh, I got to go to town and pick up groceries and there's people. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I grew up in a small town where I knew most of the people, you know, I knew almost everyone. And so I wanted that again um, to kind of see people you know all the time. So I I was really felt pretty lucky to have found it. So what is your role on the ranch these days? I do all sorts of things, honestly. Um, This is the the hardest question I always answer. People are always like, what is your job? And I'm like, I don't know. I do ranch things. Um, I I ranch, I don't know. But I, um, so there's a couple of us that are a little more cow oriented. So Brian is one of those people. And then Erica Mannix, who works for Kabira is another one of those people. So usually if there's cow work to be done, the three of us are called to be on it. So we get to do a lot of that, which is great. Because again, that's something I really love. Yesterday, I was 
we have a gate that always gets rubbed and it's right next to another gate. And so we replace that gate with a solid fence. So I did that for most of yesterday. You know, we go through the same cycles as anybody calving and pain. I'm on the bailing crew, which I really like. I was afraid they're going to stick me on the stocking crew this year, but I really like running a baler. So that's my July gig. And, you know, just trying to figure out my place in the succession of the ranch. So the fourth generation, that's Brian's dad and uncles. They're sort of looking towards retirement, you know, maybe the next five to eight years. And so we're sort of all trying to figure out what role are we going to step into and, you know, start walking towards that role. One of the things that we've identified about being a family operation that's really prioritizes hiring family because we have family that want to come back that aren't here yet. And so one of the things that we identify there is that when everyone's family, then you end up with a lot of bosses and not as many employees. And so I think that I've really come to understand that I want my role to be more of a supporting role. I don't want to be sort of the one telling everybody what to do. I kind of want to be the person that you can rely on to show up and do the work. And so I think that's a good recognition too, is when I started this ranching journey, part of it is like, oh, well, we're all working towards a ranch management goal. But I think becoming a part of a family ranch makes me really just want to be a team member and sort of show up in the ways that they need me to show up in, you know, in order for us to succeed as a whole. So yeah, I don't know. I think we'll just keep evolving. And we talk about it a lot. We talk about succession and efficiency and how we can kind of guide everyone into the role where they will excel and also be sort of the best fit for all the stuff that needs to get done on the ranch. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been cool, but definitely a totally different game than that saddle in the back of your pickup driving around to your next gig. Well, that's awesome that you found something that feels like home, like that feels like a great community. I think that's all what we're looking for and awesome that you found it in this big comfy family. And it sounds like too, you know, Erica's my coworker. We talked a little bit about the family dynamic and structure. And it sounds like they put a lot of emphasis on democratic ideals and like making sure everyone has a seat at the table. And, you know, instead of just a really top down, it's more of a, a team approach. So can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's, that's the best part about it, right? Is like, from the day I showed up that first week, it was, hey, these are our Tuesday morning meetings, we meet at 6am on Tuesdays, to discuss the week or whatever else we need to discuss, you're welcome to sit at that table. And since my first week as an intern, you know, or as an apprentice, I have felt like my voice has been heard. And that is just, you know, they talk a lot about, about what people want in a job, you know, and it's what makes them succeed. And usually autonomy is so much further up than money. You know, it's like one of those things where having autonomy and having a voice is just, it's really important for people to feel like they're thriving at their workplace. So I think that makes things messy and it slows things down when you have to listen to everyone's opinions on everything and you have to consider everyone's opinions. But I think at the end of each decision, we come out with a much stronger decision because everyone has said their piece 
and maybe they don't agree with the final decision, but they have said their piece and they feel like they have been heard and then that their opinion has been considered. And so I think that is sort of what it takes to operate a circus like this one, you know, where you have all of these people that are invested in this land and invested in this family and invested in this business and just making sure that the relationships stay at the forefront of everyone's mind and that, that that's the priority in the business is relationships. So yeah, it's, it's very cool. And I think that in general, I think a lot about the success of the family ranch in not specifically this family ranch, but just like the family ranch in general. And I think that a lot of times they struggle because that control does not move through the generations. You know, it's sort of like the oldest generation maintains that control and So the younger generation sort of burn out because if you don't have a voice and you're just working your butt off, it's, it's sort of a recipe for burnout. So I think you can work your butt off and get your voice heard, but to have one over the other doesn't really work as much. So your role, you do a lot of different things. Um, One of your jobs is working for an organization called the Blackfoot Challenge. I was doing some research and just kind of finding, as you're saying that about the family ranch, I'm realizing that a lot of those ideals are the exact same thing as what the Blackfoot Challenge encompasses and practices. So can you tell us more about what Blackfoot Challenge is? Yeah, totally. And it is, I mean, they're, they're um, very intertwined. The, a lot of the ranches in this valley and the, they're the foundation of the Blackfoot Challenge. So it is, they kind of feed off of each other, but the Blackfoot Challenge is sort of a grassroots conservation organization that was formed here in the Blackfoot by just sort of a a group of people, um, stakeholders that recognized both the incredible um, ecological value of this watershed and the challenges that were coming down the pipe or were already there. And so the challenge is really a reflection of the issues that that the community and the watershed are facing. So they have different programs. You know, one of the more success, most successful programs has been the wildlife program. We have a lot of bears here and a lot of wolves. Um, so we have potential for a lot of conflict. And so a big chunk of the wildlife program is mitigating that conflict with different flagery techniques or um, electric fencing, electric mats are big right now because bears are sort of impeding on people's home areas as well. One of the big successes of that program has been a carcass pickup. And so starting in February, when we begin calving and going through calving season, we have a carcass pickup program where someone will drive by and pick up our carcasses and bring them to a compost um, in the watershed. And so that has really helped with predator issues because back in the day, they say they you know, all the ranches would just put their, their carcasses out in the mountains. Well, then the bears get the taste of, you know, veal and, um, start coming down to get a little bit more of that. So that carcass pickup program has been huge. We have the water program, which is who I work for. So I work helping with the drought program. So for the last 21 years, we've had a drought response program and that's, Um, sort of a quick overview of that is in the um, 1970s, uh, some fish, wildlife and parks 
folks realized that we were going to run out of water in some key waterways for fish. And so they started getting in-stream rights on some of our waterways in Montana. And so there's some some of our waterways have these, they're called Murphy rights. And basically they're like a 19, some sometime in the 1970s priority date. So all water junior to that has to shut off once that reaches a critical threshold for that river system. So in the Blackfoot, it's 700 CFS. And so once our river hits 700 CFS, anybody who has junior water to that has to shut it off. And what came out of that was sort of a community response, which is our drought plan. And basically people can volunteer to give up water in order to use water that is, maybe it's junior water, that is critical to their operation. So if they've got, you know, a certain right on a stream that they isn't as important to their um, operation as another right that's a junior right, they can switch those rights, um, not legally, but just as part of their drought plan. And Fish, Wildlife and Parks doesn't make call on those who are participating in the drought program. So it's a way to sort of share the sacrifice, it's called shared sacrifice or shared giving, you know, share the burden of a low water year among all the water uses, users in the hopes that no one is burdened too severely and that people can sort of stay in production without while also the fish can have the water that they need. So, and that program has expanded significantly because of a, this is very in the weeds, but basically a compact where now that priority date goes from 1971 or two, I can't remember, but it goes to 1904. And so now all water rights that are junior to 1904 will be subject to this call for the fish. And so really trying to make sure that that expansion of the program results in an expansion of the people who are participating in the drought plan and hopefully isn't, again, too burdensome on our water users. So there's just a couple. I mean, we do a lot. We have a woman who's an amazing educator who runs an education program, really gets in touch with all the schools and works with all the schools a lot. We also have a land steward who um, helps ranchers in the valley with grazing plans. He works on pretty much everything. And then the Blackfoot Challenge also manages a big chunk of land that was uh, nature conservancy land that was transferred over. So it's sort of a shared uh, conservation area. So just a couple of the things that they do, but it's just really cool because it's one of those things that we, as a community, I mean, I came to them just this week and I was like, I think that we should do a family succession meeting you know, is that something the challenge would support? And they were like, yeah, let's talk about it. And they've done some of that stuff before too. So it's always sort of community led people come up and say, Hey, this is an issue. And the challenge tries to figure out what role they can do to help mitigate that. It's a cool organization. And David Mannix is on the board of that. So there's very intertwined. um, I feel like I'm not the only person that's worked for them from the family. Um, People sort of Jordan, um, who's Erica's brother, has done some range riding for them the last few years. So he's that's another part of the wildlife program is that range riding. So yeah, lots of, lots of good stuff. I think that's what we all hope for is community solutions to community problems. And, you know, instead of making it political, just coming together and focusing on what we can do 
if we really all look at the same issue, you know, and that's kind of what Kivira, I mean, Kivira is on a longer, you know, a larger, like geographical area. It's really cool to see one particular watershed and all these people interested in the fish in that watershed and what can we do to make sure that those fish stay alive and have good habitat. And so that is, that's just really neat. And I, I admire your, your willingness to kind of step outside of your ranching role and try to do something bigger, you know, try to get, make change in the community and coming from somewhere else. That's really cool that you've jumped in and tried to find a place at the table. Yeah. It's, it feels like a really awesome platform for me, honestly, just because, you know, with like the water thing is it's hard. And I, I think that it is nice that when I go and talk to a neighbor about shutting off water, that like they know that I am also irrigating. You know, I was probably irrigating earlier that morning and they know that like my livelihood also depends on water. And so I think some of that makes it easier than some random person sort of coming in and being like, you're going to have to give up more water. And, you know, I don't know, maybe everybody hates me, but I think, (laughs) um, you know, I think then we still have these relationships outside of that. Um, and so I think that's really cool. And I, I'm really grateful to have sort of that platform, like you said, to sort of reach out and try to make a difference and honestly, just try to protect this watershed because it is incredible. I mean, just ecologically it's it's such a critical place in the migra- migration corridor along the rockies and it is for montana is a lot less developed than a lot of these places are and you know being an hour from missoula an hour from helena that's not necessarily a given i mean we've seen a lot of other valleys become extremely developed especially i mean more recently as well so it's really unique to have such a wide open landscape um, so close to some of those urban areas. And I think we have to like actively protect it because it's certainly under threat. So anything that I can do in that regards is I'm here for it. (laughs) So in our conversation earlier, before this interview, we were talking about some of the other fun stuff that you're kind of dipping your toes into homesteading projects. You've been doing this new business with natural dyes and fibers. And we were kind of talking about how you said you were looking to craft a life more than a career. And that kind of was just a switch in mindset. And I just got to thinking, you know, I've been farming for my career too. And it feels like it walks a thin line between a life and a career in a way that other careers don't. And so what brought you to that mindset? Like what made you more interested in crafting more of a life for yourself? Like you said, that transition to to a agricultural lifestyle was certainly a part of that. Just because when you're in ag, it's not a nine to five ever. You know, it's like you show up in the morning and you work through what you have to work through until the day is over. You know, and so it that life and work really gets mixed all into one, you know, smoothie. So I think that was certainly a big step in that direction. I also had a health scare last year. And for about three weeks, I wasn't sure how severe my diagnosis was. That sort of put me into a mindset of, okay, well, if this is the end, you know, what contributions have I made on this planet? What were you know, where is, where have I mattered? And I think 
that sort of shifted things too for me because I thought a lot about the relationships. I mean, that's all that really mattered, right? was the relationships I held and what I had meant to those people. And that was going to be the significance of my life. So that sort of put me on the train of there's a whole school of thought about like begin at the end and, you know, write your own eulogy and see if you had the perfect eulogy and people were saying, you know, what you wanted them to say about you, what would that be? And then make that happen. Right. And so for me, that focused my, my attention a lot to community even more so. And then also like, I'd been wanting to do this thing with the fire arts for a while. And it just was sort of like, you know, you have to, you have to do it now because you don't know when you can do it. I think that has really helped me just shift towards what are the things that I want to do? And I think I always try to check back in with that eulogy, if you will, you know, as far as always adjusting that and figuring out like where my heart is leading me now. And a lot of it is like, I know I'm here. I know I'm here forever bearing some horrible disaster. And so I can really just focus on like, what do I want my life to look like here? And, you know, looking at the ground outside of my house, what do I want to grow here? So I think that's a really unique thing too, because not all of us get that in life. Like so many of us are, could go anywhere. We can take off anywhere. And so, because I'm fairly rooted here, it's sort of an opportunity of like, what do I want life to look like here and to focus that, focus that down. So yeah, the fiber artist thing has been really fun. And I never really thought I would add fiber artist to my list of occupations, but, um, but here we are. And it's like, it, you know, I love doing it. So as long as I continue to love doing it, I'll, I'll be doing it. I started looking at your website or Instagram. Tell folks what it's called, because I think everybody should go on there and, and take a look. I, even if you don't care at all about natural dyes, that is the coolest thing that you're doing. And it, they're really, really beautiful. And I think a celebration of Western heritage and heritage of traditional peoples too. Like this has been something that a lot of people have been doing for a long time. And it's a really cool appreciation of that. So um, if you wouldn't mind, would you share the name of the company and where people can find you? Yeah. So it's called Rusty Sagebrush. And it's called that because sagebrush is the most prolific dye plant in my backyard. Um, So when you dye with sagebrush, it turns into sort of a yellow color. And then when you put it in an iron bath, it turns it to a sage green color, which is my favorite color. So that's the um, yeah story behind the name. And I have an Instagram and I'll have a website at some point when I get my act together. Um, it is really cool. Like you said, you know, mentioning just that indigenous heritage, because I have this really cool picture and it just shows all these different DNA dyes. And I think that's really cool. Just thinking about the heritage of natural dyes, not only here in the U S but, but everywhere. And honestly, some of those histories are not, are not that pleasant. Like there's some pretty intense history behind indigo with slavery. And so just really understanding that whole history of dyes too has been really illuminating for me. And still just thinking about, you know, I was talking to another dyer fairly recently, and we were just talking about how some natural dyes eventually, you know, with a lot of sun exposure, a lot of soap, they're going to shift over time. And then, you know, if you wore yours 
every day for a long time in the sunshine, that sun will fade it. And we're just talking about how we have come accustomed to these things that stay on the planet forever. Like you wear a, you know, a lot of our clothing does not biodegrade, right? It does not return to the earth. Like a lot of our industries, a lot of our fashion. And so the fact that like natural dyes will someday return to the earth, I think can be seen as a weakness, but I think it's beautiful. Like, I think it is absolutely beautiful that you take this silk, like naturally dyed thing and it will return to the earth and it belongs there. You know, it's not these industrial chemical dyes. It's not these industrial man-made fibers. Like it's truly of the earth and it returns to the earth. And I just think that whole thing is really amazing. And we should be thinking about that in all of our consumption. Like what happens at the end of this thing's life? Does it stay what it is in its shape and its form forever? Or does it like biodegrade and return to the soil? So I don't know. I just think that's a really cool facet of natural dyes. You know, I try to use very, it's called light fast. So dyes that are really hardy to light for all of my scarves, because I know they're going to be loved and worn outside and all these things. But there's other dyes and other insulations like sagebrush is one of them where it doesn't keep its color for that long. And it's kind of cool because you watch it change over time. So it's very much a living color. And there's other artists that have done like installations of things that are specifically not lighthearty and just watched how they shift over time. Yeah, there's a lot to get into. It's really fun. And it, it kind of like brings a uh, creativity to my life that I really appreciate, you know, sort of in line with all the other things that are going on. Yeah, I think it overlaps a lot of really relevant things. It, it seems something random, but it, it when you when you describe it, it really makes a lot of sense. It, you can see how it really fits into your life and, and the things that you believe and you value. So that's awesome. I'm, I'm excited about that. I, I just have one more question for you. We are going to be opening our new agrarian program applications next week. And by the time this podcast comes out, they'll be open. And so I'm wondering as a person who's been through the program for two years and then been pretty plugged into the program as, as an alumni, what are some pieces of advice you have for our new incoming new agrarians? I think the first thing is, is like, if you've got any inclination that this is what you want to do, you should definitely do it. You know, don't question your desires, like depending on where you come from, you know, your community might think you're crazy for doing this. But I think if you've got the inclination that this might be something you want to do, absolutely go forth and try it. And even if it ends up that you don't want to be a rancher, I think it's so valuable for everyone to tune in to the agricultural cycles of life and death and just everything that comes with being an agrarian. So I think that would be my first, you know, piece of advice. And then I think just leaning into being a beginner, you know, like checking your ego at the door and understanding that this whole experience is shaped for you to learn. And so you don't have to know anything and everything that you do know you should be questioning and rethinking and um, just really leaving yourself open to be sculpted by your mentors because Kavira spends so much time 
making sure that they have quality mentors. And so every single one of them has something to teach. And, you know, where I've seen sort of problems or strife has been where that ego has come in. So I think really, really leaving the ego behind is huge. And then be prepared to work hard. (laughs) You know, I think that's, is people come in with like an assumption that, you know, they're going to get every single, you know, weekend off or like, it's always going to go the same way. And like, or you're going to get off at six and it does not happen like that. And so you have to restructure your whole idea of time and work. Everyone should get their time off, but you just have to think about, um, make sure you're ready for the the work to be hard because it will be, but be very, very rewarding. Thank you so much for um, taking the time, sharing your knowledge, sharing your story. And we'll be sure to share all of your information about your new company and the Blackfoot Challenge and the Manix Ranch in the podcast notes. But we just wanted to say thank you so much. A lot of folks look up to you and, and I'm excited to have met you. So thanks for being on the podcast. It was awesome talking to you. And um, yeah, thanks so much for doing this. And I think this podcast is really awesome and a really great resource for young people who are interested in ag. And I wish it had been around when I was, you know, trying to jump into ag because I think it would have been a lot less painful if I'd gotten to hear from some of these people first. So yeah, just thanks so much for everything you're doing. like to thank Kate so much for being on our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about her fiber business, you can find her information at RustySagebrush.com or on Instagram at RustySagebrush. You can also find information about the Mannix Brothers Ranch at MannixBeef.com. Looking for a job in regenerative agriculture? Kavira Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative agriculture community. We love to share job, internship, and apprenticeship opportunities with our community through our podcasts and our monthly newsletter. Our big job announcement this month is that applications for the 2022 season of our new agrarian apprenticeships are still being accepted on a rolling basis. The program offers eight-month full immersion apprenticeships on regenerative ranches and farms in New Mexico, Colorado, and Montana. Mentors in the program are dedicated stewards of the land, practice intentional regenerative methods of food or fiber production, provide excellent animal care, and are skilled and enthusiastic teachers. Visit our website, that's kaviracoalition.org slash newagrarian, for full descriptions of all of the mentor operations and for more details on how to apply. The priority deadline for applications closed on December 15th, but mentors will still be accepting applications on a rolling basis until all positions are filled. If you'd like to learn more about the program, have questions about any of the mentor sites, or want to check in about who's still hiring, send us an email at newagrarian at kaviracoalition.org. Kavira Coalition is also hiring for a number of positions, including an education and outreach director and a new agrarian alumni and outreach manager. We're also accepting proposals for internships for the 2022 season with Kavira. Intern projects are expected to increase a person's intellectual and experiential capacity around regenerative agriculture, soil health, land management, and conservation. In order to participate in an internship with the Kavira Coalition, an applicant must be enrolled in either an academic program or a nonprofit experiential education program. 
To learn more about these positions and to apply, visit our website at kabiracoalition.org slash work hyphen with hyphen us. Every month we include job postings in our monthly newsletter. So if you don't already receive our monthly newsletter, visit kabiracoalition.org to sign up. To view a copy of this month's newsletter or to read any of our previous newsletters, visit kaviracoalition.org slash newagrarian slash resources. Have a job opportunity to share yourself? Send it to newagrarian at kaviracoalition.org so we can include it in our next newsletter and podcast. And now for the tips and tidbits section. So in today's episode, Kate gave us so many useful nuggets of advice, but we'd like to add one more since it's our last podcast of the year. So my tip for young agrarians is, you know, during this winter season, well, for most of us, winter season, eventually it'll get cold and snowy here in Colorado. (laughs) Once it gets cold and, you know, we're spending a lot more time indoors, I think we're all inclined to plan for the next year on the farm or on the ranch and, you know, think about planting and grazing and ordering seeds and all that. But I think it's really important, especially for young agrarians who are moving from ranch to, to farm to different operations and opportunities, to sit down every year and really make a holistic plan and evaluate what your strengths and weaknesses are each season and what you learned from the last year. You know, I can look back and I'm astonished at how much I grew from season to season and how much I learned on different operations. And I think it's really important for us to write that down and use that information going forward and be really honest with ourselves. So go online, find a good framework to use and make an awesome map or do a journal entry and really reflect on the last year. I think you'll have a really awesome journal to look back on, but also you can use it to inform next season and be a better farmer or rancher. So hope everyone enjoys a very restful winter and happy holidays from Kibera Coalition. Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, a podcast production of the Kavira Coalition. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this podcast, visit kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts to become a sponsor or Patreon supporter. We'd like to thank Kavira staff members, Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Sanders, Leah Potterwaite, Tyler Eshelman, and Tafari Finn for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. And we're grateful to our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. Thank you for listening. <laughs>